Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians once again. I have the verses there printed for you on your insert. I'll also need you to turn uh, two places where we'll spend considerable time anyways, enough to open in your Bibles if you have them with with you. Uh, Acts, the book of Acts, and then the book of Philemon later, but the book of Acts, a couple excerpts from there we will be looking at. Uh, Now, we have already finished the body of this wonderful epistle, this Christ-centered epistle. Now we focus on what is the second longest farewell section, which is really a series of greetings to folks in the Colossian church, uh, in the whole Bible except for Romans 16. You'd expect Romans to have a long list. It's so much more formal than Colossians. But here, I think giving a real practicality to the new identity and the new relationships that are true in Christ, we have kind of a view into Paul's personal friendships with his brothers here. Listen, I think this is important for us to study. The commentators don't spend a lot of time on it, but as I have had opportunity to study uh, this section, I've been, been impressed with the fact that he mentions 10 different people over these 12 verses, spending considerable time on eight of them. And that's what we're going to do, is look at what Paul says regarding these Uh, In particular, eight friends. This week we'll look at the first five, and then next week uh, the last three. Look at the names, Tychicus, Aristarchus, Onesimus, Mark, and Justice. Now, I just want to say before we read, for you ladies who are with child, certainly these are some names you should consider. Now, I can't take off tithe, that's God's tithe. But maybe a parking spot in the new building for the the lady who names their child Aristarchus. And can you imagine about... To the Browns, if they're here, if you can imagine about 14 years from now, starting guard for the Westminster Christian Academy Eagles, Tychicus Brown. (laughs) Don't knock it. I'm looking for one of you to come through. Naomi's beautiful. It's biblical. But let's hear of a a just, well, we have a justice, as a matter of fact. But no Onesimus yet. So let's keep striving after it as we consider these particular people that were important enough for God the Holy Spirit to prompt Paul to write concerning. Hear God's word, Colossians 4, 7 through 11. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Let us pray. Lord, we just see on this base level how important it is in ministry and in life that we have our brothers and sisters be our friends, be our co-laborers, our fellow servants, our fellow workers for you, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would help us as we study these verses uh, to see just the depth of these relationships and how they relate to what we have been studying in Colossians as we all strive to live out these things, living in our new identity, that we would have new relationships that reflect the kind of depth, the kind of authenticity, the kind of seriousness that these relationships show us. And I pray that this would be true of every person here at Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we will take two weeks to look at this farewell section, 
of Paul's inspired letter. Now, there's two reasons why I want to take this long to look at these verses. First of all, I think that greetings, salutations, farewells, those are some of the most thoughtful things people do. Now, it's a little less the case now because we fire off emails really quick anymore, and we tack on things at the end of the emails that just are actually already on the, the program, so in, it's not like you actually wrote it. But in the day when there's no printing press, no email, any of this thing, this sort, and the letter is going to go into the hands of a congregation, read to other congregations, very careful care is taken, not to mention the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But letters were very careful in the opening salutations and the closing greetings in them themselves to have a certain level of teaching with them, teaching us even about relationships between people. So I think for that reason, it's important to spend some time looking at this section. But also secondly, and I want to be very clear, we believe, I believe, it is our conviction here that every word of Scripture is important. Every word is penned by the Holy Spirit. Some will say, well, it's not the words, it's just the, it's just the general meaning. That, that is hogwash. Because the plenary, that is the whole, is informed by the parts. And the parts must be accurate to have a whole that is accurate. And we believe that God the Holy Spirit has given us even these words for us to study. doesn't mean we'll always understand everything we read, but it's from God. And we must strive after our whole life to try to figure it out. So let's look at this text in that light. And I want to ask you very practically, are you developing friendships with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, we're already brothers and sisters based on our common union with Christ. Calls us into God's family. So you're brothers and sisters joined by faith in Christ. I think a new level of brotherhood or sisterhood, though, is when we become friends. You know, my prayer for my children, and I'm sure it is for you as well, is that they would not just be brothers, that they would be best friends, that they could always count on one another beyond what it is to be blood relatives, to be committed to one another because something tighter binds them, that's Christ. And so... Are you developing friendships with your brothers and your sisters in Christ? Deep, authentic, devoted, delightful friendships. One of the chief ways I think our new life in Christ will manifest itself is in our relationships. We've already addressed that in this epistle. But now the final section shows that this is also true among our friends and the people we minister with, live life with, go through trials with, go through victories with. Paul's final greetings reveal a unique dynamic between Christian friends. My approach will be simply to analyze person by person this week in five and then three next week, but also just note briefly at the conclusion some general lessons that we can learn as we read these important words. Let's begin at verse seven. We're introduced to Tychicus. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. Notice those three different pairings. Beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. First, he's a beloved brother, we are told. And these words go together. Uh, he is a brother that is in Christ, not that he's Paul's blood relative, but more uh, powerfully, he's bound together by faith in Christ to his brother, Tychicus, and he's beloved, he's cherished. He is valued as a brother. He's loved as a brother. He is deeply cared for as a brother. We have this commonality, Christ, and as I love Christ, I love all those who are united to him. And as we labor together, you become more and more valuable to me. And vice versa. But he's also not just a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister. A minister not necessarily in the sense of the formally ordained kind of minister, but rather servant, one who serves. A different form of servant is used in a moment, 
but this is a general word for service. Formally ordained, probably not, but a minister, meaning a servant. Then again, he is dutiful and reliable. He traveled with Paul everywhere that Paul went where he was able to. So he was a reliable, committed, dutiful servant of Christ through service of Paul. Finally, it says that kind of a combination between a beloved brother and a faithful minister, he's a fellow servant. Paul acknowledging that Paul's role is service, bond service to Christ, a slave to Christ. He's a fellow slave to Christ. Part of a team seeking after the same cause, which is the advancement of God's glory in Christ. So, very simply, we ought to see how it is that co-laborers for the kingdom, you and I, together, we are to cherish one another in a special, deep, authentic way. And also, we're to be faithful and reliable. When we commit to doing something, we should carry it out and do it well and be relied upon and know that we can be trusted, that we're committed. We're also fellow servants, always keeping in mind that we together have no hierarchy among us. We all are serving in the particular ways God has called us to serve Jesus. What else do we know about Tychicus? I asked you to look in the book of Acts. Look there in Acts chapter 20 for just a moment. And we'll, we'll see some references. There's, there's at least four references to Tychicus in Paul's writings, as you would imagine. Someone being so faithful, so devoted, reliable. Uh, but Acts 20 kind of introduces us to him. Acts 20 comes after a huge melee broke out in Ephesus, which we'll consider in a moment as we're introduced to one of the other fellows. But here in the first four verses of Acts 20, we learn of Tychicus. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Now notice, brothers and sisters, he never travels alone. I think this is important. He's always with uh, an entourage of fellow ministers. I think this is, is vitally important as we consider ministries that we are part of. Uh, we ought not send the Hirschbergers, in other words, alone. They should be with other people in ministry where they are. Continuing verse 3. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him, something that, something that Paul became used to by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater of Berea, son of Phyrus from Berea, accompanied him. And the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians. Now, Asians is synonymous with Ephesus. Asia is the region, not so much China as we think of the, uh, the Orient, but rather the, the region that uh, came further, east, or further west, which Ephesus was part of. This is the, the macro word for Ephesus. The Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So we know that Tychicus is, a, is an Ephesian by birth. Later, and you don't have to turn here, in the book of Titus, Paul refers to Tychicus again talking about a person who was stirring up division and then addressing who he was going to send. I send to you Artemis and Tychicus to you. Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. It seems like Tychicus is the kind of guy he will send for encouragement, send to relay messages from Paul because he's so reliable. He'll say it the way Paul said it. And he is caring for the brethren and that he, he comes to visit. He travels a lot. We see several times where Paul sends him. In fact, towards the end of his life, Paul, writing 2 Timothy, says, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Earlier in Ephesians, that you may know that what I am doing, what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. And that leads me to another aspect about friendships in the Lord. Uh, there is a trustworthiness that comes with it. Paul could trust Tychicus, and this is why he utilized him. He was so faithful, he would relay the exact message Paul wanted to relay. And when you're an apostle, that's even more important than when good old Tony sending a message to you. 
This is an apostle, and his reputation was of utmost importance for Christianity, more than, than the average person. The gift of apostle was a unique gift to the first century. And so for an apostle to give someone a message, that person had to be reliable, had to be trustworthy. And definitely, Tychicus fits that bill, as we see at least on four occasions, Paul sending him to give an accurate account of what was happening. And now why would he do this in the situation he is of Colossae? Well, Paul is in prison in Rome. And rather than write down so that the Romans, who undoubtedly looked at his letter, uh, see what it was and censor it, he just says, he'll tell you what's going on. And what was going on was great victory, even though he was in prison. In prison, he was able to still teach and send people out, visit with people. It was more of a house arrest than it is in the dungeon, so to speak. So he had a certain access to people, and that's perhaps why he doesn't write any more than he does. Tychicus will come and tell you what's going on, and it's good. It's good stuff, I'm sure. Well, look also at Onesimus, who is paired with Tychicus. Tychicus kind of, to me, is this picture of stability, of faithfulness. And it, I don't know Tychicus, and we'll only know him in heaven, but it seems like he's always been that way. Whereas you come to Onesimus in verse 9, and there's a different character, even though it's hardly met, mentioned of him in this verse. We'll consider what has said about him elsewhere. Verse 9 says in Colossians 4, And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, so we know that he's faithful and a beloved brother like Tychicus, who is one of you, is most likely a reference to his being a member of the Colossian church. Maybe a Colossian, but definitely a member of the church there. He's one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place. Uh, again, I mentioned that their job is to relay the accuracy of what happened with Paul in Rome and so forth. Faithful and beloved like Tychicus. But it says also, uh, very interestingly, he is one of you, but then this probably known fact about Onesimus that maybe you know, that he's the subject of the whole book, or at least the subplot of Philemon. Philemon, the epistle Paul writes to his good friend about his runaway slave. His runaway slave, Onesimus. Very interesting. Turn to Philemon 1, and we'll look at some of the first verses of that book so you get a feel for who Onesimus was. I point this out because I think Onesimus stands very differently than Tychicus in how he came to service of the Lord in Paul's uh, particular missionary efforts. But yet God uses him uniquely in a similar way. Philemon 1, verse 1 and following. Paul writing to his good friend. Paul, a prisoner for, Jesus, for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, the church in your house, grace to you and peace to, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough, and here it comes, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. In other words, in, in, with rank and with Christ as my witness, I could tell you, command you to do this, but I would rather come to you in love. Please hear me out, Paul says. I, Paul, an old man now, am in, uh, uh, now in a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that we might serve 
he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be a compulsion but of your own free will. Let me explain what's happening here. Philemon runs away from, or uh, Onesimus runs away from Philemon, his master. This is illegal. He's not allowed to do this. Runs away, probably steals some of his master's stuff en route as he leaves. Not a believer from what we can tell. He somehow meets up with Paul in Rome, in or around Rome, comes to Christ, is converted. Paul starts using him in his missionary efforts, but realizes that he must now, as a new believer, make right what he has done wrong. So on Onesimus' behalf, he writes to Philemon and says, Will you please take him back, not as a slave, but as a brother? And look what it says further. I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be compulsion. Look at verse 15. For this, perhaps, is why he has parted from you for a while, that you may have him back forever. Maybe this is the providential reason, he's saying. 16. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. And look at this wonderful heart of Paul, verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write these things with my own hand. What does that mean? The old Paul, who is in chains, reaches out with the pen and takes the quill. He probably can't see very well. Takes the pen from the one who's writing what he is dictating, and he writes with his own hand these words. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even for yourself. I write this with my own hand. That's how near and dear Onesimus was to Paul, but how important it was to make right what was wrong. Now, my point to you in, in, in looking at Onesimus and comparing with Tychicus, listen, these are two different brothers altogether from two different backgrounds, two different sides of the track. In brothers and sisters, I don't care what side of the track you come on, you can be a faithful minister for Christ. That's the point. Onesimus was not held back by his past. He was a lawbreaker, he was a runaway slave, and he was redeemed by Christ, and so then redeemed to his fellow man, as Paul directed him. And we have him serving God in faithfulness, alongside with Tychicus, so trustworthy now that the apostle would give him words to speak to people. That's the kind of transformation God can do for people. So there's nothing that disqualifies you as such from being a minister for Christ. But also we look at his friend Aristarchus, my personal favorite name. I don't know why, I just like the name. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And that's all it says. Well, what about Aristarchus? Can we know more? Well, he's a fellow prisoner of Paul, so he's in for the same thing Paul's in for. But we know that he is Paul's faithful companion. He's listed three different times as accompanying Paul. And this is important because of the particulars of, of those accompaniments. Uh, look at Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 8. And I'll skip through a few verses in that chapter. Go back and read it when you get time. It's, it's basically a free-for-all or a battle royal of sorts of people at Ephesus. When Paul had started a ministry there, became, uh, was really working to build the church in Ephesus up, and then someone did the math and realized that as people came to Christ, that would mean less money for the temples because people wouldn't go to the temples and worship anymore. And it like all of a sudden dawned on them that this Paul was costing them profits. And so that's the basis in which uh, a riot breaks out. Look at what it says, and then you'll see uh, the connection that Aristarchus has with this. Starting at verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them uh, about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way that is Christ, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. 
reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so a long time, longer than any other place Paul spends ministering, so that all the residents of Asia, otherwise known as Ephesus, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, verse 11. Now skip down to verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily through the ministry. Now, when should the missionary leave the field or go to another field? Well, verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, I've been there. I must also see Rome. So he's planning his next missionary journey. He sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he stayed there in Ephesus. Now, at that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the, concerning the way, Christ. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you, who, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's, made, that, that God's made with our hands are not God's. You can see the murmur. You can see where this is going. There's danger not only that this trade is ours, of ours may come to, into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Tradition may go by the wayside, he's saying. What we believe is go, might go by the wayside. And they heard this, and they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater. And look what happens. Dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So they come in and they attack. Paul's probably speaking. He has a certain entourage about him. And there's Aristarchus standing. The next thing you know, he's picked up by the crowd. And there's nothing more terrifying in my mind than, than a mob like that tearing someone apart. And they take Aristarchus and Gaius out. It doesn't say whether Paul sees them. We know that Alexander gets up and calms everybody, but they easily could have died. Verse 30, but when Paul wished to go into the crowd, Paul wanted to rescue his friends. The disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were his friends of his, sent him in, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Paul wanted to help him. He was scared about what was happening to them, but he was being held back, so he didn't get hurt as well. Now, things do calm down, and Aristarchus is delivered. Gaius is delivered. But it's times like this, brothers and sisters, when you have those moments of trauma together, that you get closer to one another. That's true in the church, too. When, when things happen to us, we become closer to one another. Can you imagine Paul talking with Aristarchus way years later, Aristarchus talking to Paul? Man, do you remember that time in Ephesus? Yes, I remember that. You remember what they did? Yeah, I wanted to go help you. I'm sure you did. No, I did, really. I was trying to get them, and they're holding me back. And they had this talk, and it binds them closer as they remember what happened back in Ephesus and how they should have died. Uh, Nathan and I have been close for many years. But we got a lot closer last May when I rolled my truck two and a half times with him in it. Something we have together that maybe some of you have had that experience rolling, but how many of you rolled a truck with your best friend there and wondered if he was still in the car when it came to stop? That brings you closer in a way that can't be described. Trials do that. Ministry does that. Life together does that. Victories does that together. When you spend time together over the years, you get closer together. Aristarchus has one line in Colossians, but don't let that fool you. There's a depth that goes to his relationship with Paul because of what they went through. I love listening to the stories of the original founders of Redeemer, most of which are still here. 
most of who are still here. And they will talk about how the church started and some of the funny times. Remember the Mark, the pastor before me, telling me about how he had a discussion with the treasurer once. And the treasurer said, make sure you hold your check a few extra days this week. It was like that in the early days. And it, and it wasn't said with any angst. It was kind of a chuckle about, man, can you remember how things started here? Remember how few of us were that came here and in this country out here, there was nothing here? And, and this, that boldness that it took to start this church. And then you think about the school, starting that as well. That was a, a multiplicity of stories about that as well. And, and what those opening days were like and those starts, the, the way things began. And the, the defeats that happened in there and the, the victories that happened and the way that binds a core of people together. And I really think in a lot of ways, we're still in a stage, brothers and sisters, where we're get, getting to enjoy each other at a, at a, at as a tight-knit group that will grow in a way, it'll change. Things are not always going to be this tight this way in the sense that we have this group here gathered together. It'll be bigger. But we should always strive after making attempts to grow friendships and relationships in the pockets of the church you can so that you can have those relationships. Go on mission trips. Do mission outreaches, other kinds of activities with folks. Work on the work crew. Get together with people. And over the years, you'll develop a depth of relationship with those brothers and sisters you have far deeper than anyone you've ever had a relationship with before outside of Christ. We go to Mark. Mark, known as John Mark. He is mentioned here in an unusual way. The second part of verse 10, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Notice this phrase, concerning whom you have, you can almost see Paul putting his hand over here saying, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Why is this about Mark? Well, I think we have our, our understanding is we understand the relationship between Paul and Mark. It's very interesting, to say the least, and I think it teaches us something. It's a mysterious statement for sure. What do we know about Mark? Turn to Acts chapter 12. This is so crucial. I want to read a, a larger portion of this, so please follow along as you can get the feel for what happened here. And I really think you've got to feel this. I could read just one verse, but you've got to feel this. Acts 12, verse 25. Keep in mind the excitement level of the early church the cutting-edge nature of the ministry, the missionary enterprises that are going on. Barnabas and Saul, uh, who is now Paul, are going out on these missions. They have around them other folks, one of which was John Mark. And their mission, I mean, the, the Holy Spirit's working in a unique way in this first century as the Scripture's not complete. The Paul's got to authenticate himself. Paul's got to authenticate himself as an apostle. And so you have all these amazing things happening. And it's exciting. It's dangerous. It, it's cutting-edge. And look what happens. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. That's Acts 12, 25. Bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. So they have Mark with them. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, the member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called I have called them. Then after their fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at, at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues, and they had John Mark to assist them. So John Mark's an important part of their support ministry team. They need him there. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician. They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. I mean, imagine this cutting edge, frontline ministry. 
But Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. An open debate, cutting edge, Mars Hill type stuff. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And he said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit, of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and unable to see for the, the sun for a time. By the way, wouldn't this be great if these kind of gifts were still, and you can go to Moldova or you can go to Juarez, and when you see the opposition come, blind them? Well, there's particular reasons for why this was so. But this is cutting edge, exciting. Uh, we're talking power encounter stuff. Immediately, the mist, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and he saw what had occurred. For this was a, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now look at this verse. Verse 13 explains much. Now Paul and his companions, no doubt high on adrenaline at this point, set sail from Paphos, encouraged about what the Lord would do in the next place, came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John Mark left them. John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Apparently it was not a ministry he could hack. There's no sin attached to that. It's just simply the fact that he could not hack this ministry. It was heavy duty. Not everybody's called to that kind of power encounter. But Paul never forgot it. Mark left him. Later in Acts chapter 15, they're planning a new missionary journey. Look at starting at verse 36 of Acts 15 and see how this comes back. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So he's ready to go. Paul's ready to go. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Verse 38, but Paul thought best not to take, him, take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there rose, arose a sharp disagreement. Brothers and sisters in Christ disagree sometimes. And we can't know what they said, but I'll bet you went something like this. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Let's give him another chance. Let's give him another chance. No way, Paul says. He bailed on us. We needed him. We cannot trust him again. We are going into danger. We can't have this guy with us. We don't know if he'll stick. We can only carry so many people. I'm not taking him. But that's not any way to look at it, Paul. We should take him. Give him another chance. His heart is right as well. He means to serve. No, yes, no. Okay, they have to come to an agreement. Then what will they do? There's not necessarily a sin in view here. It's just a realization that chemistry-wise, the team would not work well with Paul and Mark together, at least in Paul's judgment. So they separated from each other in verse 39. They just stopped ministering. Barnabas then took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended to, by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, a lot can be said about this. It's an unusual case. It gives us a picture of real ministry, what it's like, why it's important, why we've got to decide and put teams together and so forth. But I think in the end, Barnabas was right. In other words, he recognized there was something still to be redeemed in Mark, despite his bailing out that one time. In fact, Paul comes around to understanding this because as an old, almost blind man, as he writes to Timothy, he says this. Paul writes, Luke is alone with me. Get Mark. Get Mark. Bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. 
So there was a reconciliation that took place. Would they go on missionary journeys together every time? Maybe not. But Mark's fulfillment in the life of Paul was encouragement. And Mark also fulfilled the role by the Holy Spirit of penning one of the Gospels. I bring this up to you because I think it's important that we are careful. We are patient with people who will struggle and fail. And when they fail, that does not mean they're now disqualified from doing anything again. They failed me once. They can't thank the Lord that he does not look at us that way. Mark and Paul, very interesting dynamic that teaches us much. And now when we come to Colossians, maybe it gives us a little bit of insight of what Paul meant when he kind of said on the side, and remember what I told you about Mark. Maybe we got it covered. Let's not bring that up. Don't bring that up with Mark again. Maybe that's what he's saying. It's over with us. Welcome him. So Paul says. Finally, Jesus called justice. Just guessing. We probably went by justice because he didn't want to bear the name Jesus, which was a common name in those days. But justice, call me justice. I'd rather you call me justice. You can hear him say. Verse 11, and Jesus who's called justice. That's all that's mentioned. Although this qualifier, speaking of all the men that I've just spoken of, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers, which to me is shocking because Paul, this upstanding Jew, with all sorts of people at his command, upon conversion, almost all those folks left him. And so now just these men are the Jewish friends he has left ministering with him. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. We'll come back to that phrase in the conclusion. And they have been a comfort to me. Comfort. This being with them, uh, bringing encouragement, a sense of security, peace, confidence. They didn't have to speak. They were just with Paul and encouraged him. You know, Paul could speak to a huge crowd in Tyrannus's court or on Mars Hill and have no one that agrees except for, I got a two, few of my people here listening and nodding their heads. Uh, at the beginning, oh, when we started the Northland, uh, helped start the Northland church plant, Nathan and I would go up to the Northland. It's about a 45-minute, 50-minute drive to get to where they're meeting. And we would, we would preach there on Sunday nights. And we knew many of the folks that you knew that would come here in the morning, but several others we didn't know. And pastorally, that's always more difficult to preach to people you don't know as far as bringing application goes. And so th- that was a challenge for me. It was difficult to preach in those circumstances, I thought. And so John Myers called me one day and said, Tony, I'm going to go with you up north. I said, for what? I can get there. I don't need- No, I'm going to drive you up there. You just think and pray while we're driving up there, and I'll keep you company. And so for seven months, while we would take turns going up, Nathan and I, John Myers would come drive with us. Didn't say a word. Many times he'd let us study, go over what we're going, or ask us questions, even help focus our minds. And he'd sit in the church, and he'd be that, at least one person I knew for sure that was hearing what I was saying. And some people thought he was our bodyguard after a while. Because <laughs> John could look kind of intimidating. You know, he walked in and... But I think of him in terms of some of these folks, Tychicus, Think of others of you, and, and maybe that's your role, is that of encouragement of, of the one who comes alongside. Justice, a comfort to me, he says about justice. He says that about all these men. There are just a few general lessons I want to point out in conclusion. I think you all can see very plainly that Paul trusts these men. And brothers and sisters, become trustworthy people by the grace of God. I don't mean go out there strive after being trustworthy, but by the grace of God. Be trustworthy that your friends can trust you, trust you to tell you the truth, trust you to love you, trust you to not leave them when they need you. There's great trust developed between these brothers. And it happens over time, does not happen right away. Second lesson we learn that comes in the last part of verse 11 that I referred to. It has to do with humility as we serve together in life and ministry. What do I mean? 
Here's Paul, the great apostle, doing all these great works that we just spoke of and more. And look what he says, talking about these five men. These are the only men of the circumcision, this phrase, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. He didn't say my lowly staff people. He doesn't say these others that work for Paul in the, in the hierarchy, the corporate structure of the church. But the apostle says my fellow workers for the kingdom of Christ. This is important. We need to apply this to our, our community life. Uh, while I may bear a title, there is an equality among all of us. We are fellow workers for the kingdom. You're not fellow workers for me or the church. Fellow workers for the kingdom in the advance of Christ in his cause. Uh, let me be clear. You know, I don't wear a robe to make Tony look special. In fact, the robe is supposed to be setting apart the office of preaching to get your mind off of who Tony is. It, it, that's the point. And I don't walk wear this everywhere I go. I don't, you know, drive around town with my robe on. I don't go home and wrestle with the boys with my robe on. It's special for a moment to set apart the office of preaching. And the liturgy has us come forward. Why is that? Because we're coming from the people. We're fellow workers for the kingdom. Then we go back into the people and live our lives with one another. It's one hour and one hour and 15 minutes, give or take, every week, where for a special hour, we're identified to preach the word. And it's the word in the office, not the man. This is important. I think Paul demonstrates this in his humility, his love for his brothers, his calling them fellow workers for the kingdom of God, reminding everybody we're working for Jesus, not for the man. The man is Christ Jesus. Everyone is important. We have different roles, all important parts of this family. And finally, I would just say as a, as a bit of a encouragement, to develop deep, authentic relationships with each other. And to do so, they take time, so spend time developing those relationships, growing together. That's where our times together become more meaningful. This is not just family development. This is inter-family development. This is friendships with one another. That's where deep authenticity happens. I don't know about you, but when I started studying this farewell, I couldn't believe how much was really there. It reminds me of those bubble wrap sheets that you get to pack stuff with. We get them every once in a while. I give them to my kids, and Jordan in particular likes when I lay him on the ground, and he jumps up them and pops them all. Well, he's only maybe 35 pounds, and so he doesn't pop them all. In fact, you never pop them all. I mean, you, you, you get done, you think you got every one of them popped. There's still always one more to pop. That's the Word of God. We come to a farewell section, and we spent 40 minutes studying it, and there's more to be said. That's the beauty of what God has given us in his precious word. Are you developing friendships with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Could we say these things if we were to write a letter back to the church in Overland Park and say and name individuals in the same kind of way that Paul mentions them? I would submit to you that our new identity in Christ allows us to have much deeper, much more authentic, much more devoted, much more delightful relationships. And we could have this be true of ourselves. I hope we're striving to that end. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for the deepness of these relationships. I thank you that we can be real with one another, that we do not need to wear masks, that we can labor together, grow together, uh, go through trials together, have victories together. Lord, all for the purpose of manifesting the truth about Christ redeeming us and making us together, alive together with him, and then to each other. And Lord, let this, just this one feature of this congregation be so obvious to a watching world that they want to know what is binding these people and that they would see Christ. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.